The gist is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. And by Spotless, a sexy, bold drama laced with dark humor from Esquire Network. Learn more about Spotless by downloading Coming Clean, a roundtable podcast that goes behind the scenes of TV's best dramas. And tune into the Spotless season premiere, November 14th at 10 Eastern, 9 Central on Esquire Network. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, November 12th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Mobster, wait a minute, reputed mobster. The reputed really does wonders to get you past the co-op board, doesn't it? Anyway, reputed mobster Vincent Asaro has been found not guilty. A little racketeering, a little extortion. The centerpiece of his criminal trial, the Lufthansa heist. You remember the Lufthansa heist. And these are the guys that Jimmy put together for what turned out to be the biggest heist in American history. The Lufthansa heist. Tommy and Carbone, we're going to grab the outside guard and make him get us in the front door. Frenchie and Joe Buda had to round up the workers. That was from Goodfellas, and this was the case of U.S. v. Johnny Roastbeef. It was recently concluded in an acquittal. Actually, it was Asaro, who during the trial was, is now 80 years old, a long way from enjoying the spoils of the heist that Ray Liotta celebrated in Goodfellas. Here is Ray Liotta's character, Henry Hill, real-life gangster, reacting to the news in the shower. The FBI says $2 million. Port Authority police say $4 million. The city cops say 5 Fact is, as demonstrated at trial, Jimmy the Gent Burke, played by De Niro in the film, kept most of the money from the heist, and the rest Asaro frittered away on the ponies. In court, it was revealed that several of the other mobsters in on the crime, quote, died shortly after the heist. The judge issued a stern warning to the jury not to read anything into that comment. Uh Uh-huh. What if I played the piano part of Layla under that warning? Now, maybe you remember Frankie Carbone, back of a freezer truck. Anyway, I think Asaro got off because he didn't seem threatening during the trial. He seemed kind of pathetic. More importantly, the main witness against him was a murderer. Actually, an 11-time murderer. So a guy who could have killed an entire soccer team who was paid, it came out under cross-examination, paid by the government a quarter of a million dollars for his testimony. So rule of thumb, government, you can't flip a murderer to snare a thief. And yes, Asaro was accused of murder, but it was singular murder, not the 11 murders his main accuser admitted to. This is one of the last, if not the last, big-time mafia prosecutions in New York. The Sicilian mob, the Cosa Nostra, if you want to call it that, that's been all but broken up. The Fulton Fish Market that's been cleaned up. Betting, that's now quasi-legal. It's on the internet. And you know what? One day, another one of our great ills, I don't know, maybe it'll be gangs. Maybe it'll be terrorists. But it'll be vanquished. Progress happens. And when that occurs... It's unthinkable now, but you know what's going to happen? We'll probably have some relief to get rid of the ill, but we'll also have a fair bit of nostalgia for the cinematic depictions of said scourge, and we'll worry about the new ill that will inevitably take perniciousness to new depths. On the show today, gumspiel, but first, the subtle art of crapping all over subtlety. Movember. 
November is a month. All right. It's like kind of a rocktober month. It's a little made up. But it's the month where guys grow out their mustaches and this raises awareness for men's health issues. Well, Harry's. Harry's is the official razor partner of Movember. A lot of razor companies raising their hands, raising their handles. And I guess it was that Harry's has the nicest handles. They really do. And so Movember picked Harry's. Not exactly sure how it worked, but I do know this. Harry's is a great product and it's a great price. They bought a razor factory in Germany. The blades are really sharp and they won't hurt your face. For 10 bucks, you get three blade cartridges. You get a razor handle and your choice of shaving cream or foaming gel if you use the offer code GIST. $10 for new customers, $15 for existing customers for the starter set. That is amazing. Harry's also gives 1% of their sales and 1% of their time back to the communities they serve. And like I said, they also got this Movember tie-in going. That special offer for my fans is $5 off your first order with code GIST. That's harrys.com. Enter code GIST. In a new essay in Slate, writer Forrest Wickman crafts an argument so nuanced, so detailed, so sublime that its finer points might be lost on all but the most discerning of readers. But woe to the Philistine who attempts to parse it without the care, or I'll say it without the tools required of an exquisitely rhetorical rendered work of this nature. I lie. The essay is called Against Subtlety. The subtitle is It Sucks. Forrest Wickman is a Slate senior editor. He writes for the culture blog Browbeat. I don't like subtlety. Hello, Forrest. Hey, Mike. I'm going to say this to you, Forrest. I like the essay. It was convincing. I don't believe you. I believe you do like subtlety. But I believe you are against the fetishization of subtlety. Yeah. So, I mean, I should be clear right at the top that I'm against subtlety. I'm not against nuance. <laughs> the essay is, in fact, full of kind of nuanced distinctions. I'll be the judge of that. And... Uh, <laughs> And yeah, I, I mean, I often enjoy subtlety. I think the biggest thing I have a problem with is when subtlety is always privileged over, you know, directness. And uh, so so that's really what I'm taking is- issue with above Be- all, I think. Because I'm, I've said this to you. We discussed this. Every time you write something good, I come over and discuss this. And you're like, thanks. There's 10 minutes of my life. So at least we'll put this on the radio. But it's like being against taupe or being against mauve. So like, they might not be your favorite colors, but there are times when you use them. There are times when you lo- you use light green, and there are times when you use dark green. And you can't, you don't want to take light green, mauve, and taupe out of the palette altogether. It's just that if once everything starts being painted in a world of beige, it sucks. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know how to continue this mauve beige analogy. <laughs> I, I, I'll say that I think certainly even you would agree that there are things that can be too subtle or where the subtlety can work to a work's detriment. Like, obviously, there are definitely cases where somebody is able to communicate something or deliver some sort of pleasure without saying it outright, but in a way that, like, everyone still gets it or everyone who's at least in the intended audience still gets it. I think it's very dependent on media in a lot of ways, the medium that we're talking Mm -hmm. about. I, I would imagine that if you're a big consumer of pop music or even indie music that the fetishization of subtlety probably drives you crazy because that's the sort of thing where a site like pitchfork can't even get behind music that's clearly good if it's maybe maybe i'm being unfair to pitchfork but that is that is how i look at pitchfork like they're they're they just love things in the minor key so much that they'll give it more stars than a better 
what does better mean? But whatever, a, yeah. a, a work that achieves in a major key. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, we can make some smaller kind of nuanced distinctions with Pitchfork. They love something like the Arcade Fire and have often come out kind of with big defenses of sincerity and broad gestures and so on. Nonetheless, I think that that site and uh, a certain kind of it represents a certain kind of taste that often privileges difficulty, obliqueness, indirectness over other kinds of songwriting that can be just as effective and I would argue more often more effective that just tell a really good story really clearly and they really get you in the end. And that's something like, you know, country uh, and hip hop, I think, are the two genres where the songwriters or and or rappers are the best at that, at just being really, really clear and telling a story and not trying to kind of cloak everything. And then and, and those are generally the lyrics I find most powerful. My mama was raised in the era when clean water was only served to the fairer skin. Doing clothes, you would have thought I had help, but they wasn't satisfied unless I picked the car and myself. You see, it's broke, nigga, race him. That's that, don't touch anything in the stove. And it's rich, nigga, race him. That's that, come in, please buy more. What you want? A Bentley, fur coat, a diamond chain? All you blacks want all the same thing. So when you talk about against subtlety, you're not against it all the times, but what's this kind of subtlety you're against? I'm not against nuance. I'm not against moral ambiguity. I don't think everything has to be black and white. I am against privileging things for being more coded, more indirect, more oblique, for thinking that all the most most important information or all the biggest pleasures have to be delivered through subtext. So I think that's kind of what I'm talking about. Right. And and you even quote people in the piece that says the, th- the stuff that stands the test of time is often the least subtle stuff. Great Gatsby. Shakespeare. Right, right. In, in Shakespeare, you often have people turning directly to the audience and yeah. essentially delivering the theme to you. If chance will have me king, why chance may crown me. I'm thinking of, uh, there was an episode, I think The Sopranos, do you think, there was a lot of stuff that wasn't subtle, but also I think Mm -hmm. that there was a lot of stuff that was subtle. And one of the pleasures of The Sopranos was that not everything had to be stated. Characters didn't have to get their comeuppance for being wrong. There was that one where uh, Tony flipped an SUV when he saw a deer and then said something like, well, good thing if we weren't in an SUV, if we were in a regular car, we would be dead. Obvious just laying out there without anyone correcting him is only the SUV would flip Tony. And all these characters had this self-delusion, and I love the fact that I got that. So I don't know if that's too subtle. <laughs> I think it's fine for, you know, I enjoy picking up on things all of the time. Yeah. For example, is, I think one kind of classic symbol from The Sopranos is uh, the, I think it's ducks that come and land on Tony's pool. And I think yeah. the fact that that show led with a symbol that was just like the elephant in the room of the first episode made people instantly take it more seriously in a way that people shouldn't necessarily when there are plenty of other shows where you pick up on what they're getting at right away. A couple months before, there's these two wild ducks landed on my pool. It was amazing. They're from Canada or someplace and it was mating season. They had some ducklings. But like something like The Wire has its difficulties, but very often a character will just come out and kind of give a speech on what's wrong with the dr- the war on drugs. And yeah. I think that is no less good or no less important. I mean, you put a textbook in front of these kids, put a problem on a blackboard, or teach them every problem on some statewide test, it won't matter. None of it. Because they're not learning for our world, they're learning for theirs. 
and they know exactly what it is a trainer for and what it is everyone expects them to be. I expect them to be students. But it's not about you or us, or the test or the system. It's what they expected themselves. I mean, every single one of them know they headed back to the corners. What about symbolism? Are you against symbolism? Why the hell do we have symbolism? Uh, symbolism can be useful for a lot of things. Like sometimes there are there are things even in this essay against subtlety that I felt like I didn't have the space to come out and say outright, and so I had to kind of gesture towards them. And that, and so in that sense, symbols can be a good way to plug things in along the margins. There's also sometimes you uh, want to convey something, but in order to get it across. To have just a character come out and say something would kind of break the realism. Yes. And so to preserve the realism, you have to kind of convey it through some object. There are a lot of uses of symbolism, but I think increasingly we take works that are subtextual more seriously than works that are on the surface. Yeah. And I think there's another argument for symbolism, which is if it kind of connects to a shared human experience, it could have extra power. You know, someone uh, with their arms outstretched that's the christ symbolism even if you don't get that it's christ symbolism there's something about that that's very affecting it's maybe because you've been to a lot of churches where you've seen christ displayed like that yeah yeah and and i guess one other purpose of symbolism that i uh didn't quite get to mention but i think is important to acknowledge is that a lot of times the only way to convey something important was through subtext because of censorship. And so in that sense, it was really important for you to deliver your kind of like anti-authoritarian message through all these codes. And I certainly have no problem with that. But, you know, most of the time in the United States in the 21st century, you don't really need to do that anymore. You see lots of great movies coming from Iran that are super subtle, very coded and really powerful. And that's unfortunately the only way that they can kind of convey what they want to. Well, maybe there's an idea that for art to be good, it should be challenging. I don't know if that's true, but subtlety is one. I agree with that either. But there are other ways to be challenging. Like you talk about Psycho as an unsubtle Mm -hmm. piece of work. But there are all these usually violent or graphic things that are derided as unsubtle, like Bonnie and Clyde or or, um, Tarantino movies. But they also were challenging. They were impolite. They were also challenging to our mores. So maybe... Maybe, I don't know if there's any great work of art that's totally not challenging. Oh, certainly I don't want uh, all works of art to just come out and reinforce your beliefs about everything. I I wouldn't be a good slate writer if I (laughs) I didn't believe in the the power of kind of making counterintuitive arguments and arguing against people and challenging what they think. And so in that sense, I agree with that. But plenty of things are just fun in ways that you don't have to do any of the interpretive work yourself. And that's, that's great. Yeah, or not even fun, like uh, yeah. discomforting because they're meant to be. Or sure. Charge of the Light Brigade, rousing. It's a great poem. Yeah. It's not subtle. Yeah. Forrest Wickman, senior writer for Slate. Thank you, Forrest. Thanks, Mike. This episode is brought to you by Esquire Network's new series, Spotless, a sexy and bold drama laced with dark humor. Spotless tells the story of a troubled man whose tidy life is turned upside down when his outlaw brother crash lands into his world. That forces dark secrets of the past into the light and gets both of them fatally involved in organized crime. It's played out against a backdrop of Gene's niche crime scene cleaning business. There are gangsters, there's corruption, drugs, Death's a constant hazard. Oh, yeah. 
I can attest to that. Gene, Martin, and their dysfunctional family struggle to gain control over life, business, and their shared destiny. No one gets away clean. Find out what happens when the mob needs a little help cleaning up. Spotless premieres November 14th, 10 o'clock, 9 central, on the Esquire Network. And now the spiel, chew on this. In this space, I have discussed issues from taxation to immigration to the pursuit of free inquiry on college campuses and even how to welcome and incorporate transgendered people into society. Hint, don't be horrible. I've held forth on the lyrics to break a my stride. I've detailed the case against daylight saving time. But now I want to talk about something I do every day, something I'm doing when I think these other thoughts, the thoughts I just mentioned, something but for your and Andrea's ears, that I would be doing right now if I could. And that thing is gum chewing. I don't exactly enjoy chewing gum as much as I am displeased by the sensation of not chewing gum, especially to cap off a meal. Is it the fresh breath? Is it the long-lasting flavor? Is it the puckish interplay between the ethylmethylphenylglycidate and the isoamyl acetate? Well, yes, but I also found out today that gum chewing is an effective booster of mental performance. St. Lawrence University researchers found that on five of six mental tasks, gum chewers outperform non-chewers for about 20 minutes while doing the tasks. So four out of five dentists surveyed would recommend sugarless gum for success in five out of six tasks. I think the fifth dentist, the holdout, who's not recommending sugarless gum for his patients who chew gum, that's the same guy who failed the sixth task. Just a theory, a theory that came to me because I was chewing gum at the time. Actually, it came to me because I was thinking about gum because I was following this story out of Seattle about the gum wall. The gum wall is a collection of gum near the Pike Place Market. It's been stuck to a wall for 20 years and now is being removed. How large a collection? Here's Pike Place Market spokeswoman Emily Crawford with her estimate. And I did a rough calculation this morning that if each piece of gum weighs a gram, then that equals about 2,200 pounds, give or take, of gum. But we'll find out at the end of the week how right my my guesstimate really is. Literally a ton of gum, a ton and a tenth, as it were. Indeed, this supposition, a million pieces, that sounds like a nice round number, right? But it will be tested, according to members of the gum removal crew, as interviewed by KUOW Radio. So the PDA has uh, requested that we collect it for them, and so we're going to do that. And, uh, you know, I think they'd like to weigh it, and, you know, we're talking about uh, 20 years of gum. And so, you know, there's some interest as to how much there was, you know, over the years. The gum was first put there by patrons waiting in line for a theater. Then the tradition grew and grew until we hit apparently a million pieces, not one of which was associated with a Bazooka Joe comic that ended in what can reasonably be defined as an actual punchline. Let me just read a couple Bazooka Joe comics to you if you're not familiar with the form. I don't know the names of the guys. I think Joe is the guy in the eye patch. Joe, yesterday I took Val to Burger World for dinner, but after the date, she wouldn't let me kiss her goodnight. Other guy, maybe Mortimer. What did you do wrong? Joe, I ordered onion rings. And then Mortimer, this this statement blows Mortimer, if that is indeed his name, off his feet. That is great. Listen, to, here's another one. <laughs> this is exactly the sort of thing that would not get Fiorella LaGuardia reelected. Let's say Joe, dude with the eye patch. It's raining. You'd better stay here tonight. Other bald guy, swell. Joe, you can sleep in my room. Hey, where are you? Other bald guy, hiya. I ran home to get my pajamas. I so don't get it. Let's not overthink this. Just a classic Bazooka Joe comic. 
I have been consuming a lot of gum and a lot of gum-related media. The bubble has popped on what is certainly one of Seattle's oddest traditions. Don't worry, officials don't expect the clean wall to stick around. Gum puns? You want to throw down some gum puns, Reuters reporter? Fine. Officials are chomping at the bit at a plan they've been chewing over, waiting to unwrap. First, workers will try denting the gum wall, but in tooth decay might occur. Actually, they're not denting the wall. They're blasting it off with hot water. And after they clean it, they'll allow the gum chewers to redecorate the edifice with every variety from extra to bubblicious. But did you know that chewing gum has been in decline? Yes, chewing gum sales have dipped 11% since 2009. Also, the kind of gum being chewed has changed. Year 2000, sugarless gum, sugar full gum, about even. Last year, sugar-free gum sales were $3 billion. Sugared gum sales fell to half a billion dollars. And I think the two trends, overall gum sales declining and the cratering of sugared gum, I think it's related. See, I noticed something about gum and how it relates to fun. Sugarless gum, which is the only kind I chew, it's not fun, and therefore it doesn't lend itself to commercial jingles. Let's think about all the gum jingles out there. Double your pleasure, double your fun, with double good, double good, double mint gum. Or this one. No little cinnamon gum freshens breath longer than Big Red. Man, those guys hated little cinnamon gum. Even the gum commercials that maybe we think were for sugarless gum. Brush your breath, brush your breath, brush your breath with dentine. Back then, dentine wasn't sugarless. Even Freedent, which took the stick out of gum, kept the sugar in. Freedent's the one that took the stick out of gum. I'll give you that extra had a jingle to it. A bad jingle. But all good gum jingles are for sugared gum. Sugared gum sales have dwindled and the commercials went away in response to the market, right? The guys were like, no one's chewing sugared gum. We got to advertise the sugarless gum. I say no. I say big gum, even little cinnamon gum, has got it exactly backwards. More jingles will equal more sales. I think the entire genre can be easily updated. So back in the early 80s, we had this. Gee, your birthday party was quite a treat to your breath. Just knocked them off their feet. Brush your breath, brush your breath, brush your breath with dentine. Let's update it. You taught the class quite a lesson, but your breath was deemed a microaggression. Brush your breath, brush your breath, brush your breath with dentine. We go celebrity endorsement. Ben Carson, you said the pyramids were used for grain, but it's your breath that voters deem insane. Brush your breath, brush your breath, brush your breath with dentine. You were acquitted of the Lufthansa job, but your breath is judge guilty as charged. Brush your breath, brush your breath, brush your breath with dentine. I got a million of them, and starting in a couple weeks, I can return to sticking them on that wall in Seattle. Brush your breath, brush your breath, brush your breath with dentine. And that's it for today's show. As far back as Andrea Salenzi remembers, she wanted to be a gangster. Also, producer of the gist. So let me understand this. Let me understand this, because, you know, maybe it's me. Maybe maybe I'm a little fucked up a little. Andy Bowers, executive producer, is funny how? I mean, he's funny like a clown. He amuses you. He makes you laugh. He's here to amuse you. What do you mean funny? How is he funny? The gist. We're going to go get the papers. Get the papers. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>